to your right. Thank you for those that work with our children, rest of us. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Let's continue our study in the book of Matthew. As you're turning there, thinking about that lyric that we just sang, sometimes just because of the nature of the position of being a pastor, an elder at a church, you'll get asked uh, your advice on something. So I'm going to give you the best piece of advice I could ever give anyone. I'm about to give it to you. You will die. You're going to die. And there's a day coming you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus. You're going to stand before the Father. You will be evaluated. And when that day comes and you're evaluated, why should you get to go to heaven? Why should God let you into heaven? You had better not just say this. You had better believe it right now. All I have is Christ. Why, why are you getting in? All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. And if you will get that and believe that, trust in that, then you will be allowed and you will have eternal life. What a great lyric. What a great song. Matthew 21. We're going to look at, I think it's six verses this morning, um, a passage that's kind of familiar to us, but it is also a passage uh, that, frankly, we don't preach on a lot. Nobody, I don't think, would go out of their way if they were just doing a topical message to just run to this passage. So we're kind of know of it, but I don't know that we know a lot of the details. Uh, the text this morning will require us to do a lot of teaching, especially in the beginning portion to set uh, the setting, give the setting. So as we do each week, just before we're going to read, we're going to start in verse 12 in a moment. Erica alluded to verses 1 through 11. And so not reteaching all of that, but here's where we, we notice that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as he's approaching Jerusalem. We know this, this is the Passion Week. There's going to be eight chapters given to about seven days, and really seven chapters given to like six days of this week. And so the Lord is about to approach Jerusalem. He's at the Mount of Olives. He sends for a donkey to be brought to him, he ends up riding this donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And as was alluded to earlier, people are shouting and praising and Hosanna to the highest and glory to God in the highest. And that Hosanna, and people are putting palm branches in their cloaks and making a path, in essence, rolling out the red carpet and referring to Jesus as the son of David. And he goes down and he goes into the city. But I want to, I want to mention this. Between verse 11 and 12, you don't see it in Matthew, but there is a gap of time. It's a gap of an evening until the next morning. So it's going to get a little tricky, and we'll point it out as we go. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus curses a fig tree, and that's actually the effect of that is spread over two days. So his original speech against the fig tree has already happened, by the way, by the time we're reading verse 12. It's going to be brought up by Matthew in the next few verses. So the Lord, presumably on Sunday, some would say on Monday, he does this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Mark says, Matthew doesn't cover it. It's fine. We put them all together and we get a, a better picture of what's happening. Mark says that after the Lord went and looked at the temple, then he went out to the city of Bethany. And you're going to see that same idea at the end of Matthew's passage. Apparently he keeps going back and spending the night in the nearby little town of Bethany. So the Lord goes in, he looks around, but because it was so late in the evening, he then left. And apparently what he saw there was probably the wrapping up of the day that will now set the stage for what we're about to read as he comes in the next day, presumably Monday morning, possibly 
Tuesday morning. It's hard to be totally dogmatic on this. So with that as the background, he's had the triumphal injury, looked around, went and spent the night with some friends in Bethany, comes back the next day, and now we find him entering the temple again with this. Notice verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, turtle doves. So let's read that again. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, turtle doves. He said to them, it is written. So he's basing what he's doing into a passage of Scripture that comes out of Isaiah chapter 56. He said to them, it is written, my house. So this is God talking back in the book of Isaiah. God the Father, and Jesus is now quoting that and pointing attention to why he did what he did. It is written. In other words, you should know this. This should not be happening, what you've been doing. Why? Because it is written by God, my house shall be called a house of prayer. God wanted his house to be known as a house of prayer. Jesus here says, 700 years later, but you make it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. There's robbery taking place here. There's thieving, stealing is taking place right here in the courts of God's temple. That's our scene. Go ahead and tell you we're going to spend the vast majority of our time in those two verses. That'll be the first point. It is, we'll spend more time there than we do the other two points combined by far. Verse 14. This will be the second point. And, so there's that, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and, very simple, he healed them. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on verse 14 because we've read and preached a lot and taught a lot about the healings of Jesus. I'm pretty sure, I might even have said this earlier, but mistakenly, this is the last time we'll talk about this healing power of Christ as we move forward. It's come up over and over, so we'll look at it there. The blind and the lame, and there's not only folks that can't walk, but maimed in any way. This would include the arms, the hands, an ability to walk very difficultly or not at all. Again, the lame and the blind are brought, and he healed them. But, now here's our third thought. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, so they see this, and the children crying out in the temple. So they see what happens there with the blind and the lame, and they see something else. The children crying out in the temple, which we just heard talked about, ties back again to last week. What are the children crying out? And by the way, these are little children, little children, little children. Hosanna to the son of David. So this healing's taken place. This cleansing has taken place. He's run these people off. Now here comes the blind and the lame, and the Lord is healing them. And these little children start crying out, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, the son of David. The problem was, back to start verse 15 again, when the chief priest and scribe saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They, the chief priests and the scribes, indignant, angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Did you catch it? Do you hear what these are saying? Surely you hear what they're saying. 
implying, what are you going to do about this? And Jesus said to them, yes. Do you hear what they're saying? Yes. Have you never read? Knowing they've read this, have you never read? Quote, now he's quoting a psalm. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The idea that, that God, when needed, will put his truth even into infants and nursing babies to proclaim and praise his strength is a word that's even used there. But the idea to praise the strength and the power of God. When needed, God will even put it into the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He'll reveal to them truth and they will praise. And then verse 17 says, And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And leaving them, Jesus went out of the city and lodged there. The idea, he did this again. He goes back to Bethany. So guys, well, here's what I want to do. We're going to have three thoughts this morning, but I'm going to actually start in verse 17. I'm not going to make it a whole point. I'm just going to share a thought because it's kind of directional, transitional, and we're going to hit it quickly there. MacArthur writes the following about verse 17. So you got it? He's in the temple, but then he leaves and goes out to Bethany, and that's where he stays. MacArthur writes the following. Tradition had long dictated that Passover could be celebrated properly only in Jerusalem. This was the idea of the day. If you're going to really celebrate Passover, you got to do it in the city of Jerusalem. But there's a problem. He continues, because the city could not accommodate the increased multitudes that came for that occasion. Does anyone here remember last week where we threw out a number of an estimate of potential, actually historical estimates, the best they could tell, this is about how many Jews would descend on the city of Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Does anybody remember that number? Two and a half million people. The city is not built, especially at that time, with its walls. So now back to his quote. He says, but because, so again, you're going to celebrate Passover, you need to do it at Jerusalem. That's the tradition. That's the expectation. But because the city could not accommodate the increased multitudes that came for that occasion, they have, an, have a solution. It's a fine solution. He writes, the religious leaders declared a special edict each year that temporarily extended the city boundaries to include a sizable area outside the city walls, including several small villages such as Bethphage and Bethany. And so the Lord is there and keeping even the tradition that, yes, this is where we observe Passover. We come to Jerusalem, and because it's so many people, people are camping all around. And if you can't do that, you've got to extend even further out to include other, these other cities and so we think he's going and spending his time at the house of Lazarus, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, his very good friends. And so he goes into the city, and then he comes out. And he goes, and he does this day after day until what happens at the end. Notice three things this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first one. Number one, revelations of Jesus' character. And there's lots of ways we could go with verse 12 and 13. The reason I've said it that way is that's where we're going to finish. We're going to finish with revelations of Jesus' character. So even as we're thinking about verse 12 and 13, I want you guys to put yourself in the position that if you were teaching this to a small group of children and you were trying to get this across and you were to finish with this question, okay, little kids, let's look back at what Jesus does in verse 13. What character traits, what attributes do we see of the Lord Jesus coming out of this? And so as we go through this, I hope you'll already be looking. Because I, if you're a Christian, here's where I'm at. I'm a Christian. I want to know Jesus, and I do know Jesus. 
And I want to know what he really is like, not just my own ideas. I have to change some things through the years of what I thought God is like and what the Lord Jesus is like. I want to know the real Jesus. And so if I'm going to find out what is his true personality, what are his attributes, what is his character, I need to include the things that would be coming from this text. So I'm even asking you as you go through, be aware, pay attention. How would you teach that? And what is the Lord showing you about our Lord in this passage? All right. So now we have our setting. Look back at verse 12. Let's read 12 and 13 again. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I need to back up and I need to start. So I'm kind of warning you. Ready? Everybody ready? Let's just take a few minutes. Let's just be teachable and let's get the setting. There's quite a bit going on. Just teaching for a few minutes. Number one, this is not the first time Jesus has done this. Now, I wouldn't die for this, but it appears, some would say this just happened one time, and that John, in his gospel, for some reason, puts it way out of order and puts it at the front of his gospel in John chapter 2. I think, and many others believe, the best way to look at it is this actually happened twice. So John puts this, uh, an event just like this, same occasion where the Lord cleanses the temple. In fact, John writes about a whip made out of cords that the Lord uses to drive the animals and the sellers of the animals and overturns the tables and the coins are rolling and all of those same things. And he does this three years earlier. So first thing we need to note, the Lord has already done this. This is the second time. Second thing I want you to note, look at verse 12 one more time. Jesus entered the temple. So we could look at that and say, oh, he's going into the temple building. He is not going into the temple building, the proper building itself, where it has the holy place and the holy of holies. He's not going into that. Remember, we're talking about a complex of the temple. So the complex of the temple is up on the temple mount. There would be these courtyards, large courtyards, especially the first one. And it's going to go by layers. So there's large outer courtyards, and then you move up and in, and there's another courtyard, and up and in, there's another one, and you're building up to the temple at the top. Each one is getting more exclusive as you go. This event happens at the court of the Gentiles. So you have the court of the Gentiles, and that's where this activity is taking place. What that means, if you and I live back then, I'm a Gentile, but I want to worship Jehovah God, Yahweh, then I take on the belief system of the Jews. I become a Jewish proselyte, and I want to go to Jerusalem and worship God. I can only go as far as the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, because inside of that is the court of the women. So Jewish women could go past where we Gentiles could go. So you have the court of the Jewish women. After that, you have beyond where only Jewish males could go. And then beyond that, you have where only the Levites could go. And then you have beyond that where only special families within the Levite tribe known as the priests. They go and they work at the innermost part of right next to the temple. And then with that, you have certain priests on a rotation who go into the holy place and change out the table of showbread once a week. And you have the altar of incense right in front of the curtain where the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant is on the other side, the innermost part. And then over here, you have the candlestick. And so that needs dealt with. So only the priests go there. And then the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes in there. Just one person and only one day a year. So it's going like this, getting more exclusive. This takes place in the court of the Gentiles. It's Passover. What's going on? The nation of Israel is, is celebrating every year, March, late March, early April, God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from slavery to the country of Egypt. 
And the way God did that was he broke down Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not want to let the nation of Israel go, but God finally kept breaking them down with miracle after miracle and judgment after judgment until ultimately on the last thing, the 10th plague, God killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And he would have killed the firstborn of the Jews, except they were told to kill a male lamb one year old, take its blood, spread it over your door on the sides and over the top, and tonight the death angel is going to come and kill all the firstborn. But if you'll go inside that house where the blood of this lamb has been applied, then the death angel will pass over and skip you, and judgment will not come on you, it will come on then. And that's exactly what happened, and by the next day, Pharaoh realizes what has happened. His own firstborn has been killed, and Pharaoh is like, leave, I can't take it anymore. And now here we are, 1,500 years And the Jews are still celebrating the great Passover deliverance from slavery. Now, I alluded to this last week. Who attends the Passover? Many, any Jew could attend. You and I could have attended had we we lived back there. Just want to go observe, want to learn. Or I'm a Jewish proselyte. That's fine. But if you were a male Jew, 20 years old and up, you were expected to go to Jerusalem during the week of Passover. And you were expected to do at least two things. If you're taking notes, write these two things down. Number one, you were expected to pay a temple tax. A temple tax for the operation of the temple. But here's the unique thing about the temple tax. It has to be paid only in certain acceptable type of currency. Only acceptable Jewish coin. You can't use Roman currency. You couldn't use Greek currency. I've read that they would accept coins that were made from around the city of Tyre, up near Sidon. So you have Tyre and Sidon. Apparently they use very high content of silver in their coinage. And so that would be accepted, but also the Jewish. And so the idea here, people have to, if you, don't, if you have foreign currency and you can only pay the temple tax in this currency, then you're going to need to trade it out. So that's part of the context. Remember back in chapter 17, you remember that? A month earlier, so some people would have already paid this tax, but a month earlier, the, the Jews would go, go out into various towns and villages around Palestine and collect the tax, and they even ask, Peter, does your master not pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, in essence to Peter, as the son of God, sons aren't taxed. I don't have to pay the tax, but so that we don't offend anyone, you go out and go fishing, and the first fish that you catch, you're going to find enough. You're going to find a coin in its mouth. Take that and go pay both yours and my tax. So some have already paid the tax. Others have not yet paid the tax. Here's the tax. It should equal about two days' work for a common person. Let me just do quick math, right? This is not, again, I'm reading between the lines. I'm trying to calculate. If an average man takes two days' salary of his labor, then what would that be? If an average man here in our economy, let's say, say makes about $100 a day, times that times two days, that would be the temple tax. If we lived in that time, it would be about $200 right? Times that, let's say, instead of a quarter million, let's say not all of them are males and not all of them are 20 years old and up. Some young children, I know some boys are here. Take just, say, 200,000, right? 200,000 males, 20 years old and up, times the 200, and what do you come up with? Uh, What did I come up with? Yeah, it would be about $40 million, right? And then, no doubt, many others have already paid this tax. You're not talking about a small amount of money, but it has to be paid in a certain currency, Second thing I want you to write down, they were expected to make an animal sacrifice. And these two things are where part of the problem comes in. So these are the expectations. You expected make an animal sacrifice at Passover. They would have various options. So here's the idea. You're going to pay the tax if you haven't, and you're going to offer an animal as a sacrifice. Those are not cheap. 
But the further away you live from Jerusalem, the less likely you're going to bring an animal from home. If you live local, you may have your own. It's like, this is my animal, and it meets the requirements, in particular if you were offering a lamb. Here's a male, one-year-old. It's spotless. It's healthy. Nothing's wrong with its coat. It's clean, and I'm here presenting that. Maybe you could try to offer that, right? And so they would come. But most people live further away than that, and the further you went, it would be like, I'm not going to fight and take the chance of it getting sick or losing weight. I certainly can't make this animal walk all this distance. How am I going to transport it? I, I thought about just, I just looked up the city of Capernaum. If you did a direct line from Capernaum up in Galilee down to Jerusalem, that's about 80 miles, but we know they didn't do that. They went around like that. So you're talking about a 100-mile trip just where a lot of Jews would come from. And so what's the solution to that? We're just going to buy an animal when we get to Jerusalem. And this was wise and smart, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But when you get there, you're going to buy the animal. It's not going to be cheap because a sacrifice is supposed to cost you something. And so it is going to cost them, and it'll cost them their money rather than bringing their own animal. We'll buy one, and it's going to be expensive, not cheap. And so what would happen is... The people in Jerusalem through the years got ready and in connection with the temple. They knew that at these certain seasons, we had better have many, many, many more than we normally would animals that meet the requirements of the temple sacrifices. And then they would have coinage ready. I think about our VBS and we do this penny offering. We used to do it a little different. And I remember how Miss Renee would run to the bank in advance and start getting pennies so we could trade out. Kids would bring $5 and $10 here. Here's your penny worth because the boys want to win and the girls want to win and we put them in the bucket. And so they would be ready with coinage. And we're talking about large denominations of money is going to be passing hands in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. So then what's the problem? Nothing I've said is a problem so far. Jesus' issue, I told you it was going to be teachy at the beginning. Jesus' issue is about location and exploitation. That's the problem. It's about location and exploitation. So the problem is you could go and buy these animals outside the city. So here's one of the main issues. I read, I forget who it was, but they were quoting a man named Alfred Edersheim who had done some study, and what he had found out is that before this time period, these stalls and money-changing stations and, and tables were, had been set up out on the Mount of Olives previously. So here's the Mount of Olives, over here's Jerusalem, and if you, you want to participate in the offerings or the sacrifices, then you'd go over there and do your dealings. But now Caiaphas is the high priest, and at some point in his reign, he's brought that out of the Mount of Olives, and he's brought it into the courtyard of the Gentiles, literally right there in the temple. And that's the issue that Jesus has a problem with. So what's the problem? If you're taking notes, write this down. The problem was you, if you were there, could buy a sheep, a ram, a bull, a goat. You could buy that outside the city of Jerusalem, and everything about it looks to be okay. But when you actually go to offer this, if you have bought it outside of the city of Jerusalem, instead of inside through the dealers that they have set up, then the issue is that no matter how choice this animal is, it's not going to pass the inspection that is done by the temple priests. The official inspection. They'll deny it. I don't know how they knew this. They probably had some kind of mark, maybe a piece of paper, something that showed where you bought, where'd you get this animal? So in other words, it may look good to you and it passes all the requirements, but they're going to reject it. And think about that. If you've come all this way, 
You're going to offer these sacrifices, and it gets rejected. So now, two choices. We're not able to offer a sacrifice. Or we bought that one at an expensive price outside the city, but a fraction of the price we would buy inside, but it's been rejected. And ultimately now, at the end of the day, we have to go back and buy an animal inside the temple. And so you can see the whole system is rigged. This, this whole market inside the court of the Gentiles has been referred to as the bazaar, right? The marketplace, the bazaar of Annas. Annas used to be the high priest. Now his son Caiaphas is the high priest. It was very corrupt. Second problem. You with me so far? They're way overcharging. You can get the same animal, un, way less than half price out there, but it's probably going to get rejected. System's rigged. Second thing is in the exchange of the money. Now watch, guys. It is not that they charged a fee to exchange the money. That's not the issue. Whoever's out there working to exchange money, you have to pay them. They have to live, so there's that. The problem was the exorbitant amount, the extreme ripoff, the extremely high markup they were placing on the exchange fee. We don't know exactly. All we know is was it was a ripoff. Think about this. Some of you have been to large cities that have arenas, and you go to a concert or a sporting event or to a, a large production. You go into that city, and you find these parking lots all around, and you can go rent a parking space. Maybe it has a meter, and you pay a certain amount of money, or it's during the week, and you can go, and you can park there for 4 or $5 or $10, but you go get that same parking spot during a large, very hard-to-buy-a-ticket-for sporting event, or concert, and all of a sudden that same parking spot is no longer $5 or $10. It is now, I've seen them even up to $30 and $40. And you're like, what? all I need is about this little tiny space. Yeah, we'll rent it to you for this much. And it becomes very obvious that they've gotten together with all the other parking lot attendants, knowing that you want the convenience of being close to the arena, and you're going to pay it. And you're like, I'm not going to pay it. I'm going over here. I'll walk further. Okay, you go pay $20. Well, I'm not going to pay that. Okay, then you're going to walk a mile and a half. It's this. You can go down to Walmart this morning. I don't know this for sure because I never do our shopping, but I think you could probably buy a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, whatever you like, Mountain Dew. Two liter, 68 ounces for like $1.80, right? You could probably buy that about about $1.80, 68 ounces. Go to the theater, right? Go to the theater. Okay, you say, I don't go around just chugging on two liters, right? Okay, go down to the convenience store right down here, Whitehall Road, 28 Bypass. You know the one I'm talking about. Anyway, you go right down there, you get a 24, 30, 32-ounce drink, and you put the amount of ice that you want in it, you're going to pay about a dollar. If you go to the theater or to the arena or to the amusement park, same thing, they're going to hand it to you full of ice and a little bit of soda, and you're going to pay what for it? $4.50. You're going to pay four. Why? Why would you pay that? Because they have a monopoly. You're not, you, want to, you want a drink? Don't, you can't bring your own drinks in here. You want to get ours? Yeah, I need something to drink. Right. Well, we're going to charge you way more than you ever should have to pay because we can. So here's the problem. Here's the corruption. These people have had meetings, and it's obvious. They've had brainstorming sessions of how they can take this thing that they know everybody's coming. They're going to come, and they need these things, and so we're going to charge not just to meet the need, but we're going to make a lot of money and a lot of exorbitant profit off, off of it. So write this thought down. In a moment, we'll look at verse 13, but let's take the note first. Jesus has two main issues. So I've already alluded. The problem is location. It's fine when it's outside the city, 
But it's location and exploitation, and so here's our thought. What's Christ's issues? Number one, Israel's leaders were using Passover to exploit common worshipers. Just common worshipers, common people. They're ripping them off financially. And now as we look at verse 13, we find the second problem was that prayer had been disrupted. How is prayer disrupted? Write this thought. Commercialism had made it all but impossible to pray in the temple. I thought about how difficult it is for me to pray. I mean, even when it's quiet and silent, just like the littlest sound can all of a sudden, I'm thinking about that sound instead of focusing on the Lord. And that's why I try to get in a nice, quiet place all by myself. And even then, I have to rein in my thoughts. Guys, I'm just going to confess. If I was trying to worship and, and, and pray to God in an environment like this and animals are running around and cows are being herded and sheep are being herded and people are over there, you know, haggling over prices and exchange rates and people are running off mad and slamming and sighing and all of a sudden that is not conducive to prayer. And that's what the Lord has such an issue with. Look at verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7, and I'm not going to take the time, but if you go look at that, what the Lord is saying is in the temple, in the Old Testament temple, God's plan all along was for people to be able to come and have this relationship with him and to be able to pray. And again, this would be a special place of prayer. Don't take what we're saying this morning about the temple and apply it to the building that you're sitting in here at 120 Centerville Road, Anderson. Don't apply th this to here. Here's why. That was different. You say, how is this different? So the Lord is saying God's plan is that his house, yes, is a place of sacrifice. And yes, it's a place of surrender and serving one another and fellowship, and there would be teaching going on in these various places. But God's plan all along was that it would be a place of prayer for all peoples, for all the nations. You want to know the God of Israel? Come and get to know the God of Israel. Here's what was so unique. The original temple had a specially manifested presence of God in the Holy of Holies, literally called the Shekinah glory, where you had the mercy seat, where you had the Ark of the Covenant, like this big, this wide, this tall, has a lid that sits on top of it, this overlaid with gold, and you have these angels that would come up over top of that, and they would be, again, poured there, fashioned, facing each other, and then God's very presence would come in the middle of that, so that if you lived in that time period, and you're like, I want to get to know the God of Israel, get as close as you possibly can in the court of the Gentiles, and you would be literally praying toward the holiest of holies, that place, that part of the temple. But if you're a Jewish woman, you're getting a little closer, and you go as far as you can, and you're praying that direction. If you're a Jewish man, you're a little closer and the Levites and the priests, and they're directing their prayers toward that. If they couldn't be there, they would at least face, we've read about Daniel, they would face Jerusalem because that's where the manifested presence of God was. But two things have changed from then till now. What are they? Here's what's changed. This temple is no longer on earth. It's been destroyed. It's not there. You with me? Here's the second thing that has changed. For over the last 1,900 years, every true Christian, every true Christian has the very Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, which allows us to have perpetual, nonstop, here's the key, anytime, any place, fellowship with God the Father. So anywhere, what that means is today we don't have to go to the city of Jerusalem to have really close fellowship with God. I want to get as close as I can. There's no temple there. 
You don't have to face Jerusalem. You don't have to, you're welcome to, you don't have to come to Grace View. You don't have to go to any church. If you're a true Christian, you have God's Holy Spirit in you so that you can live in perpetual fellowship with God. And yet, so that, those two things have changed, and yet something has not changed. Let's write this note. What has not changed is that even with all Christians having God's Spirit, we have perpetual fellowship, God still wants corporate prayer to be a very prominent part when his people gather to worship him. God still wants corporate prayer. i got to tell you guys, and I know not that many of you were here Wednesday. Some of you were. I enjoyed Wednesday's prayer time about as much as anything we've done here probably in a month. And it was just kind of, what, about 25 minutes long and you weren't planning on it when you arrived, but we, and even, it was somber and it was heavy. But we just knew that we needed to pray for the situation that was going on in Afghanistan. What the Lord is saying, any time period, I want my people, when they gather, to have prayer as a prominent place in what they're doing. Guys, it's stated in Scripture. I could pause and we could just launch into a study of prayer, corporate prayer in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room. It's in Acts chapter 2, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. It's in chapter 4, after persecution, and the apostles get out of that persecution. They go meet where the church was gathered and praying. It's in Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison, but the, and, and they've already killed James, the, 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 one of the inner circle of the Lord's Inner, inner three, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. We would include him there almost as well. James has already been killed. They're going to kill Peter the next day, but the church is gathered together praying. It's in Acts chapter 13. The church up in Antioch is praying, and God says, as a result of their prayer and fasting, send out Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. It's in Acts chapter 14. As they're finishing up the first missionary journey, getting ready to head back home, they go back and retrace their steps, and they pray with each one of the, the little cities that they've gathered and started a church there, and they start praying and fasting with them and appointing elders in each one of those cities. So that's just, and it just continues right on. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul tells Timothy, this is what I want done. I want prayer to be an important part. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul tells the Thessalonians, pray that the word of God will advance. Yes, it's difficult and we're under persecution. Pray that God will use his word to advance all around. It's in Philemon verse 22 that we looked at last Wednesday and we're going to finish up this Wednesday where Paul is in prison but he says I'm pretty sure I'm confident I have great hope that I'm going to get out of prison as a result of your prayers. You guys are praying when you get together for me because I'm in prison. God wants prayer to be part. Quickly look at verse 13 again. He said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer. That temple is no longer there. We have the Holy Spirit but here's the problem. You make it a den of robbers. I won't go into this a lot, but ladies and gentlemen, due to the crucial nature of spiritual things, now hear me, physical things are very important, but I hope you understand spiritual things are more important. We're talking about eternity. Due to the nature of spiritual things, religion has been abused for thousands of years as a way to exploit well-meaning, common worshipers who just want to have a right relationship with God. Religion has been big business for thousands of years. We could just launch into how has that been abused? People, again, it's because spiritual things are so important. We're talking about eternity. People use that 
to take advantage of other people, and they see an opportunity to make money, and that's what Jesus saw here in the temple. My mind goes back to the 1500s, early 1500s. The Catholic Church wants to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and they found out Germany has some money, so they send Johann Tetzel up to Germany, get some of their money, go sell them these things called indulgences. And the worse your sin is, then the more you'll pay, but we'll give you a piece of paper from the church that's forgiving that sin. And boy, the Germans started cutting their money and giving it because they had this sin. They wanted to get right with God. They were afraid. And so, again, they started paying all this money to Johann Tetzel, who was there on behalf of the Catholic church, ripping them off, ripping people off, taking advantage. I saw this two years ago when I went to Eastern Europe. One after another, people coming into churches, the church that we were visiting there, and they would buy a candle, and they'd go up and light that candle, and that candle represented a prayer. And as long as that candle was lit, they, were, they had disbelief that their prayer was still ascending. And so the person, they'd go up and they'd buy a candle, one after another, just a line continuous, and they'd put their candle in this glass thing, and it had like sand stuff in the bottom, and they were just full of all these candles. And every little bit, they'd have to stop the line, the guy would step in, and he'd take those on this side, and he'd snap them, blow them out, snap them, break them, because got to make room for more candles. Got to keep the money, keep rolling in. And I'm sitting there thinking how pitiful. I don't need a candle to keep my prayers continuing. I've seen this on TV years ago. Televangelists, you send me X amount of dollars and I'll send you a little piece of cloth that I've prayed over. Oh, boy. Preacher so-and-so is going to send me a cloth that he's prayed over or cried over. Really? People do it all the time. People fall for it. Back, again, the Middle Ages, they'd have these things called relics, probably fakes. We say, what's a relic? It might be a piece of Mary's clothing or one of the spikes from Jesus' cross or this is a piece of the ark or, uh, you know, a, cloth, a cloth piece from one of this saint or that saint or this is out of that building or that building. And they would line them up and people would pay money and come pray over all the relics. And the more relics that you could pray over, the more likely your prayer was to be. It's a money scam, just a scam, taking people's money. It's on, it's on right now. There are people who have television shows. And if you really watch them, watch the whole 30 minutes and boil it down. And you know what it's about? Not all of them. Not all of them. I'm not, I'm, this is not an indictment of all people who have done that. Please hear me. But a lot of people have a television show so they can ask for money. Why do they need the money? So they can have a television show. To, to do what? To ask for money. To have a show. To ask for money. To have a show. To ask for money. It's like, and so they can get wealthy. Religion is big business, and that's what the Lord walks into, and he hates it. So now I come to where I started, and I told you we'd spend most of our time in this first point. What do you see in Jesus when you look at this passage, verse 12 and 13? What do you see? We narrowed it down. There are many more, literally double this amount. But let's notice at least four things about Christ. Number one, we can't help but notice that, G that Jesus has great zeal for God's house. Jesus has great zeal for God's house. Jesus, we could even add, if you want to add the word prayer. I read this passage and this tells me the Lord Jesus Christ had great passion and energy and zeal for the function, what is the function that goes on at God's house and the purity of what takes place at God's house. I'm not going to develop this thought. I'm just going to state it. Jesus cares about the function and the purity of what takes place among God's people. He wants it pure. He wants it right. He cares. He's invested. He's invested, passionate, and zealous about prayer. 
So, let me ask you a quick question. What do you think is the number one priority that God is after when he saved you? I'm sure not everyone in here is a Christian yet. But if, if you are a true Christian, why did God save you? If you're thinking, he saved me so that I wouldn't have to go to hell, that is not the, the top priority. You say, oh, so I can go to heaven and see all the beautiful things about heaven. That is not the top priority. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 tells us the main thing that God is after. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So the ultimate primary goal, the ultimate goal that God is after is that all his people, by the way, listen, it's going to happen. If you're a true Christian, you will be conformed to the image of Christ so that Christ will be the firstborn, the highest top ranking among many brothers and sisters in his family. He's the only only begotten son of God by nature. We're the adopted children of God. And God's plan is to make us like Christ. So here's my thought. Are we like Christ? He has great zeal for the house of God. What do you have great zeal for? Confession. I get, and I'm not the only one in the room. I get really passionate about sports. I like sports. I get fired up. I get fired up, right? What? No, what? Come on! Like they can hear me. I coach well when I'm watching them. These coaches would just listen to me. These players, get him out. Put that guy back in. Stop doing it. I get fired up. I'll tell you what else. I care about what kind of government we have here. I care about it. It matters. I like the government we've had for 51 years. I like it. It's got a lot of flaws. I like it better than the other ones that are out there. I'll go further. It has a lot of flaws. And I'm not an expert on economy. But our system of economics, I kind of like it. Capitalism, hey, you want to work hard? Start something up? Go be successful? You can do that here. People are coming from all over the world. Having said that, I'll get fired up about that, and I'll get fired up about that, and I'll get fired up about that. But the problem is, there's a lot of Christians get fired up about a lot of things, and they have no zeal for the house of God. Now, here's the thing. The Bible does not endorse any sports team, not even the Tar Heels, even though the sky is Carolina blue. That is not an endorsement. And I pray that he helps them win sometimes. I do. Do you know the Bible does not endorse a system of government in the New Testament? The New Testament does not endorse a system of economics. I get fired up, you get fired up, but if we're going to get fired up about lesser things, we had better get fired up about what's going on in the house of God. A lot of Christians fired up about that and that and that, and they don't even go to church. They're not like Christ. Second thought. What do we see in Jesus, his characteristics? Jesus is greatly concerned about God's reputation. He's very concerned about the reputation of God. Everybody around the world, the known world, again, I don't know how far east we would go, the far east. I don't know that they would know. Perhaps they did. But the known western and middle eastern and African world at that time knows about the temple to the God of the Jews Yahweh, the I am God. They say that their God is the God of all the gods. They say their God is the God that created all things. And they know there's this temple, and it was like impressive. Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And if you want to see something, you go down there. If you want to see a great building, you go see Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple, or you go see Herod's temple that was made for the temple of God. And here's the problem. 
Jesus walks in and he realizes that all these people are going to come from afar and as far as they can go is the court of the Gentiles. They can't go any further than that and all they're seeing are bulls and goats and rams and lambs and pigeons, turtle doves, and hucksters bargaining and vying for exchange rates and haggling. And so here's what bothers the Lord. He knows that folks are going to go home instead of thinking, wow, I really met with God this week. I sensed God's presence. They're going home thinking, what a scam. They ripped me off. And they're mad about it. And the Lord hates that. Jesus is concerned about God's reputation. Finish that thought as you're, if you're taking notes. Here's what's sad. Often God does not get to build his own reputation. God doesn't get to build his own reputation. Not always. Often he does. So before I explain what this means, let me qualify it personally. What I'm about to say is not prideful. It's factual. It is only by grace, and I'm not the only one in the room. So I mean this. I know God. I know God. I know the Lord Jesus. I know the Holy Spirit. I know God. He has revealed, he, he has revealed himself to me. I know God. So, I don't take what other people who go around claiming they're Christians, I don't take what they do and let it affect my view of God. I don't build my view of God based off what people who say that they're his followers. But here's the problem. Anderson County's full of people who don't know God. And they're forming their opinion off of sickness and pain and suffering and the people that they know who say they're followers of God. They say they're followers of Jesus. And so often God doesn't get to make his own reputation. We're out making his reputation for him. I'm not Graceview. I'm a small part of Graceview. But because of who I am at Graceview, there are going to be people that are going to come across me, and I won't even know who they are, but they may know who I am. And here's a fact. To them, I am Graceview. I am Graceview. You say, Jeff, I'm not getting your point. The young lady or the young man over here at the drive-thru at McDonald's is not McDonald's, but to me, you're McDonald's. You do the wrong thing. In my mind, McDonald's did the wrong thing. You do the right thing and provide great service. I think, oh, McDonald's is doing well. I'll be back. You are Graceview to someone. You are your company to someone. You are, if, if you're in a public relations and they know, oh, you work for them, you are the company. You are Christ to some people. If you, if you go around saying, now listen, here's what that means. If you're not a Christian, please keep coming. If you're not a Christian yet, you keep coming here. Please keep coming. But don't go around saying that you are a Christian if you're not a Christian so that you don't give God a bad name. If you are a true Christian, live up to what the Lord calls us to. Not by you trying harder, but by you literally on purpose at any given moment saying, Holy Spirit, I surrender to you. I need you to live the Christian life through me in a way that glorifies God. It's been said, Alexander the Great, the great Greek general and leader, conqueror, Alexander had a soldier in his ranks that had the same name as him. Drop the Great. Alexander heard a bad report 
because this one soldier that had the same name as him was known to be a coward. And so Alexander the Great told this man, he said, listen, you either change your name or mend your ways. Change your name or mend your ways. What he's saying is, word has it, Alexander runs on the battlefield and I don't run on the battlefield. You need to get a different name. And if you want to keep the name Alexander, change your ways. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you this question? If the people around you only have you to go by, what do they think God is like? Jesus did not like the impression that people were getting about the Father. Number three, write this down. We notice Jesus' courage and boldness. Note Jesus' courage and boldness. And particularly when I look at verse 12, I note the words, he drove out. I note the words, he overturned. So those are pretty dramatic actions. Think about the scene. Put yourself back in there. I don't, I'm not going to have time to develop it, but just go back in that scene. There's this large outside, like football field size, several football field size, outer court. There's all these animals. Here comes the Lord. He's overturning tables. He's driving people away. No doubt animals are moving. Birds are flying. Corns, coins are rolling. People are getting up and running away from the Lord Jesus. I don't know. Neither one of the three synoptic gospels mention a whip made out of cords. I don't know. Maybe he did that or not at this time. But people are on the move. Here's what you have to remember. That Rome, earthly, as far as the earthly power, Rome was in charge, but they knew that these Jews are so zealous about their religion, they let them have, the Jews were allowed to have a temple police force. They could have a temple police force. In fact, in certain narrow situations, they could even kill someone, and it, after they describe it to the Romans, there would be no repercussions. Here's one of those. You go past, if you're a Gentile, you can go to the court of the Gentiles, but if you try to go beyond that, there's a sign saying, if you're a Gentile, you go beyond this point, they can kill you. And so the temple police force would come out and kill people. I'm saying that for this reason. The temple police force is all around, and here's this one man. Now, we know who he is, but in their mind, here's this one man, one, totally outnumbered by all these other people, all these other business people, and here he is, one person driving them off, and animals are flying away. He is attacking literally their livelihood. He is attacking the way they observe their most ancient tradition, Passover. And yet, what I notice is, not one person tries to stop our Lord. That's how passionate and how bold and how courageous he was. No one steps up and dares get in his way. I'm just imagining in my mind, what was on the disciples' face as they're watching this? One of my favorite movies, literally, one of my top five favorite movies is called The Patriot. Uh, Mel Gibson plays Captain Benjamin Martin back in the Revolutionary War. And there's a certain scene, if you've watched the movie, you'll remember the scene. If you've not, you need to go watch the movie. You need to go rent the movie if you like good movies. I like a good movie, second sports. Sports are usually going to be on if it's my choice, but a good movie. There's this one scene, though, where Captain Benjamin Martin's son, has, his son Gabriel, has been captured by the British, and boy, Captain Martin goes down and takes on, basically with the help of a couple of his younger sons, but ultimately takes on, what, 25 or 30 British, and he just goes off on them, and it, you know, Mel Gibson's got these wild eyes, and his hair's flying everywhere, and you just see his little sons just sitting there looking like, we've heard Dad was tough and rough, and he had this reputation of being a great warrior, but man, we're looking at it right now. I'm wondering if the disciples are like, Wow! Look at you, man, 
I've never seen him act like this. And he's just going, he's singing, and people are like running and getting out of there, which leads to the fourth thing we notice about Christ. It's undeniable. You can't miss it, and that's his righteous anger. He has righteous anger. He hated what he saw. We don't emphasize the righteous indignation of God very often. We talk a lot about his love, and please understand, we do not need to stop talking about the love of the Lord Jesus or the love of God, but we need to balance that with this. Guys, can I propose this? The reason Jesus is so angry is not only because of what is happening. He's angry for two things about himself. He is holy, he's holy, and he is loving. He's holy, he hates sin, and he loves God, and he loves worshipers, and he sees they're all being done wrong, and so his holiness and his love turns into passionate zeal. Again, I wish I had time to develop it. I don't know how this happened. All I know is he starts driving, and he starts overturning, and then he talks. Then he talks. Are you there? Go back in that scene. Go in that. Go there. You're at a position. You got your little drone. You're watching this scene. Here comes the Lord. He has his disciples with him. He's been there the day before. Now he's back on this day. And over there's the part where all the market and the bazaar is there, and there's haggling and selling and animals and turtle doves, the whole thing, money exchanging, people getting taken advantage of. I wonder as the Lord got closer and closer, the disciples are clueless. Does he start at the end picking up his pace and just start like, where's where he going? He just walks ahead. And here's this guy making some exchange, haggling a little bit, that person making a sale. And out of the blue, here comes this fast-paced person and just out, I mean, just starts, wham, table. Like, what? And what are you doing? Turning things over. Could you imagine? There's an old video of Bobby Knight throwing a chair. Could you picture Jesus just coming in and bam, in here this morning, starts slinging things in a rage. You say, well, I don't know how to use it. Oh, he's mad. He's ticked off. Well, I think God would never get angry. God hates sin. And we don't have a true picture of Jesus until we get this idea and round out what we see of him. What makes you angry? What's the last thing you got angry about? Yesterday I heard something. Won't go into it. Made me angry. We're going to have to deal with it. Got to investigate a little bit. Got to hear some more. Got to hear what's going on. But if it didn't make me angry, that would show that I lack love and I lack holiness. We have to deal with something. The elders don't know it yet. We have to deal with it. We would be wrong not to. We would be unchristlike not to. We're going to love throughout. Look at First Corinthians chapter six, and we're going to very quickly hit our second point this morning. First Corinthians chapter six. Hold your spot. Flip over to chapter six. Some of you saw the reference. You know what it says. Quick point. So we have the temple. And Jesus cleanses the temple. But it's no longer there. 1 Corinthians 6, the last two verses after the Lord had just said, flee sexual immorality. Flee fornication. Don't, again, you'd have to go back and look. Don't use your body to commit sexual sins if you're a Christian. Because if you link up your body in a way of sexual sin, you're actually taking the body of Christ 
and entering into a wrong, sinful, sexual situation. So verse 18, flee from that. You're sinning against your own body and you're tearing down the reputation of Christ. Why is this important? Verse 19, do you not know, he says to the Corinthians, do you not know, so grace if you hear this, if you're a Christian, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with whom, within, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It matters what we do in our body. Verse 19 again, do you not know? Paul's almost like shocked. Hey, Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That applies even today. Here's my thought, guys. Listen. Jesus hates sin in the temple. My body is the temple of God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus hates sin in my body. Jesus wants to and knows how to drive sin out of my body. You say, Jeff, I'm having a hard time. I've really been struggling with this. Have you literally presented it to the Lord? God, I can't do this. I've tried to rid my life of this. I need you to drive this out of my life. Ask the Lord. to. He knows how to cleanse the temple. Now hear this thought, and then we're going to hit the second point. I'm going to read three verses, a phrase, because I want you to get this. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? Acts 16, verse 7 says, I'm just getting a phrase. Acts 16, 7, listen. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Galatians 4, 6. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. So Acts 16, the Spirit of Jesus. Galatians 4, 6. God has sent the Spirit, sent the Spirit of His Son. Philippians 1.19 says, hey, Philippians, through your prayers, and quote, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. So note those three phrases. Spirit of Jesus, Acts 16. Spirit of his Son, Galatians 4. And then Philippians 1, Spirit of Jesus Christ. So here's my thought. If I have in me not just the Holy Spirit of God, but the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ, that should affect how I live. All Christians are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The question is, are we controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ? When I am controlled by the Spirit of Christ, then I will be like Christ. If I were to be controlled by the Spirit of an orangutan, you're like, okay, wait, you just lost me, Jeff. If I were to be controlled by the Spirit of an orangutan, Maybe before I go home or on my way home, you may find me over in my neighbor's yard swinging through the trees. Like, what is he doing? He's kind of indwelt, possessed by the spirit of an orangutan, and he just likes climbing. That's what he does. If I'm not only possessed eternally, permanently by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, but actually controlled by him, then I will have zeal for God's house, zeal for prayer. I will be concerned about God's reputation. I will be, let me find, I will be bold and courageous even when I'm outnumbered. I will have boldness and courage over fear and anxiety. I will be righteously angry when it calls for it if I'm like Christ. Number two, verse 14. So we've seen Revelations of Jesus' character, notice revelations of Jesus' power. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame. Well, I wish y'all had time to just read that over and over and over with verse 12 and 13. 
right? I wish you had time to read that. Here's what you would picture. A contrast. Some people are running away from the Lord. Another group of people are coming to the Lord. Some people are exploiting others for filthy lucre. Jesus is giving people something greater than they're giving, and he always does it for free, no charge. You see the contrast? Watch. Jesus shows it is literally possible to be filled with righteous indignation and wrath and anger, righteous anger, and yet at the same time be filled and controlled with loving compassion. It is totally possible. Righteous anger, loving compassion, perfectly blended together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we find in verse 14. MacArthur writes the following. So here we have the blind. I'm not going to develop this thought, just throwing this out. MacArthur writes, quote, Those needy souls correctly sensed that the Lord's fury was in no way directed at them. So here the Lord is just cleansed. He's angry. He's wrathful. And here come the blind and the lame. Notice that the Lord doesn't say, what do you guys want? You're going to have to wait. Notice the disciples don't go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Now's not a good time. He's on edge. Come back tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Try, to, try tomorrow. Not, just not a good time. The Lord cleanses there, and he starts healing here. Perfectly showing that is possible. And what if I'm controlled by the same, like not just indwelt, but controlled. This is possible for us. Write this thought down. MacArthur says, just as the wicked and unrepentant can expect God's anger. The wicked and unrepentant, get ready. God's anger. You can expect that. But just like that, he writes, those who humbly seek for his truth and his help can expect his compassion. So the Lord has compassion and he healed them. He healed them. We've talked about that over and over. This is miraculous. We could even add the word revelations of Jesus. Miraculous. Literally miracles are happening. No one is being turned away. This is not being faked. If it were being faked, then surely word would spread. He's healing the the lame and the blind. And the real lame and the blind would have made their way. And they would have been turned away. No, no. They just keep coming and the Lord just keeps. It's real. Which leads to the third thought this morning. Verse 15 to 17. We notice... Praise, there's two thoughts here. Praise for Jesus disgusts some. Do you know that that sentence stands on its own? Even to this day, praise for Jesus disgusts some. Look at verse 15. So the lame and the blind are coming to Jesus. He healed them. Y'all ready? Here we go. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you catch it? Jesus, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes see two things. Pay attention. Watch. They see Jesus miraculously healing people. They're watching this. And they see, really the idea is little boys. Little boys crying out Hosanna. They see Jesus healing Guys, they're what? I'm 51. I've never seen a physical miracle. I have never seen a physical miracle. They're sitting here watching them. Know that person's blind. We know that. I mean, look at that person's hand. It's missing. Look at their leg. 
Look, I know those people, and they're just watching one after another after another, miracle after miracle after miracle. But somehow, some way, these people can watch that, and their heart is not affected. It doesn't make them fall in love with Jesus. It doesn't change their mind about Jesus. They see that, and then they see these little boys, these children, crying out, Hosanna. And the Bible says they became indignant. So here's my question. Which one of those two things made them indignant? Which one of those made them indignant? Which one of those made them wrathful? So here's what we have in this scene. We've seen what makes Jesus angry. Now we're seeing what makes Jesus' enemies angry. Which one? I would say both of those. The the apparent picture is they had rather Jesus not heal at all. Yes, these people are desperate. We'd rather see you not heal them than heal them if it's only going to result in people praising you. We don't want to see you being praised. They're disgusted by praise for Jesus They know what's going on. They know, watch, they know these children are referring to Jesus as the son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. And they know that Jesus knows the implication. You, look at verse 16. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Translation. You know the implications of what they're doing. You know they're looking at you as they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You know what they're saying. What are you going to do about it? Why are the children saying that phrase? Of all the things they could say, why are they saying that phrase? Why are they saying that? Why do you think? The text doesn't say. Look at the end of verse 15. Hosanna to the son of David. Of all the things they could say, why are they saying that? These little children are merely repeating, but from their own heart, what they heard the day before at the triumphal entry. And now they're repeating it. Erica gave us part of the root meaning of Hosanna. You remember it? Praise, adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is what was said the day before. Glory, honor, exaltation to God. Praise, adoration. But do you remember the other meaning? Do you remember Hosanna's actual root meaning? Originally it meant to save us. Save us now. So here are these little children crying out, save, save. And they're looking at Jesus. And they're crying out, praise and adoration. Looking at Jesus and it's driving these scribes and chief priests crazy. So they want him to make him stop, but Jesus does not make him stop. In fact, I would not have seen this in the text had D.A. Carson not pointed it out for me, so I want to share it with you. Look down at verse 16. Do you, not, do you hear what these are saying? He says to them, yes. Have you never read? Now I want you to pay attention to this quote. Out of the mouth of infants. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Have you never read that? Where is that quote from? I told you it's from Psalms. Some of y'all have a study Bible. You have a little notation. Follow it down to the bottom of the page. That is Psalm what? Psalm what? 8 verse 2. So here's the thing we need to note about that. Carson writes the following. He says, The children's hosannas are not being directed to God, but to the son of David. That's what they're saying. It's being directed to the son of David. Why does that matter? Carson continues. Jesus is therefore not only acknowledging his Messiahship. Oh, I know they're talking to me, and I know they're calling me the son of David, and I know they're crying out Hosanna. So he continues. Jesus is therefore not only acknowledging his Messiahship, but justifying the praise of the children by applying. Here's the key. Jesus is applying to himself a passage of Scripture applicable only to God. 
Don't have time, but if you were to go study Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is about God the Father. It starts with capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, Jehovah God, the God, the covenant God of Israel. And then comes down to verse 2, that when necessary, he puts his truth even into infants and babes, nursing babes, so that they end up praising him. And along comes Jesus and uses, uses this passage that has to do with God, and he applies it to himself. So what's Jesus doing? Yes, I know they're calling me that, and I'm accepting that I am the Messiah. And by applying Psalm 8, verse 2 to himself, he's saying, I am more than what they're, they're calling me. I am actually God's son, God in the flesh. So he's taking even more. And that's really going to drive him crazy. And that leads down to verse 17. And leaving them, off he goes out of town. And then they'll go make their plan to kill him. And they'll kill him by the end of the week. So the final thoughts this morning are these. Have you never read Out of the Mouth of Infants and Nursing Babies? You've prepared, you've prepared praise. Have you never read that? Jesus' reply was, if you're taking notes, these children have more spiritual insight to recognize the Messiah than Israel's leaders. And you guys have been studying Scripture your whole life. These little children realize three things. They know that I'm the Messiah. They know that I'm the one worthy of praise. And they know that I'm the only one who can save. These little children... Little unlearned children, they went three for three. You guys are 0 for three. You don't recognize that I'm the Messiah. You don't know that I'm the one that's deserving of praise. And you don't know that I'm the only one that can save. They're three for three. You're 0 for three. And speaking of three, here's our final, and they're brief, final three thoughts. You ready? It's going to be quick. What do we learn in verse 15 and 16? We learn... And I hate to, I don't want to end on negative, but this is what we learn. We learn that wherever heartfelt praise of Jesus takes place, these little children, wherever heartfelt praise of Jesus takes place, unfortunately, there is usually some who are very nearby who ridicule it. Happens all the time. Hey, Grace View, it is happening this morning all across America. I hope it hasn't happened here this morning. I'm mentioning it so that you will make sure this is not you. Here we have, we've got a bug. Here we have the chief priests and the scribes should have been praising Jesus, all the evidence, miracle after miracle, but instead they're ridiculing those who are praising Jesus. All around the United States this morning, it is right now sweeping across, there's much genuine praise going on, but in that there are churches, I'm telling you, filled with people who externally look the part. I mean, they look like what you want, what fits man-made rules of appearance. They fit the man-made rules of appearance, and they talk really well about theology. But when praise and adoration of Christ is going on, they're vacant. They're not focused on the Lord. They're not praising the Lord because they're too busy judging other people. So pay attention here. Let that never be you. I want to say it this way. You, all of us, should be praising the Lord as we were exhorted during the worship set this morning. Praise the Lord in private. Praise the Lord in public. But if you choose to refuse, make sure you are not one of those who is inwardly ridiculing and judging and looking down with disdain on those who actually do praise the Lord. Don't let that be you. It just may be, you say, yeah, Jeff, but look, they don't meet the appearance of the man-made rules. I know. And Jeff, they're not great at their theology yet. I know. They just love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul, and they're on the journey, and they're praising him. Don't ridicule them. 
And I'm not talking about, boy, we need some wildfire and a bunch of people faking it either. You don't need to fake praise. Let it be genuine. Let it really boil from your heart. You focus on the Lord. But if you're not going to praise the Lord, then don't ridicule. Hey, he may like how they're praising him better than how you're not praising him. And lastly, write this thought. If those who should most readily praise God for all he's done, for all he's shown, if they refuse, the chief priests and the scribes, Again, if those who should most readily praise God for all He's done, all He's shown, if they refuse, God will raise up others who will. God will raise up others who will praise Him. Even if He has to give the rocks the ability. The day before this, we didn't read it, it was in another gospel. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you need to make all these people who are shouting out Hosanna to God in the highest. And praising you, you need to make them be quiet. And Jesus says, if they were to be silent, the rocks would cry out. In other words, I'm not going to make them stop praising me. Grace, if you listen, when those who should praise God because they know what he's done, they know how he's revealed himself, they should be praising. When they refuse, God will raise up others who will. Even if it's the rocks, even if it's little children, he'll raise them up. Why? Jesus will be praised. I don't know if Deanna will remember this. I don't know if she'll remember it or not. I'm pretty sure the person I'm going to mention will not remember it. Maybe, perhaps. It's back when we had the old, I mean, it's probably about 20 years ago, we had the old blue caravan, the 1988 caravan. I'm driving along one night. It's must, I, I remember I could see, but I couldn't see well. So it must have been near dark. Deanna bumped me. We have music going. We always have music. We used to love to listen to Southern gospel music back then. And so Deanna bumped me and said, did like that, for me to look. Well, I can't, like, oh, I can't do that. So I remember looking in my mirror. And back, for some reason in my mind, it was on the driver's side, not in the middle row, but it seems like it was in the back row. And I don't know why it would have been there. But Deanna, do you remember this? They like to ride in the back. Do you, do you know what I'm about to say? Because we've never really talked about this. Deanna bumps me, and I look in the mirror, and in the back, Erica is singing. And she's got her hand up, just like she does still. Maybe five years old, just singing. Clueless, just barely dark. Out of the mouths of infants, nursing children, young children. Have you never read? God will put his truth into them and they'll praise him. And it was a rebuke to me because here's the thing. We didn't go to a church where she would have ever seen hand-raising. Didn't do it where we were at. Didn't do it certainly at the place we went after that. Where's this coming from? You know what I love about Graceview? We got little kids running around here. They'll put their whole heart into our singing, and they'll be just as genuine, and they'll just sing out. And, man, they, like, really mean it. It's like they just love the Lord, and they love the music, and they love worshiping. And we have some adults. Their lips are not moving to truth. How is that possible? If those who should be praising the Lord refuse, God will raise up others. Maybe we need to learn something from some of these little children running around here and how they praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we dismiss this morning, God, I pray that even now that we would be in prayer. Father, help us not 
to exit mentally. Lord, we come to you through Jesus. So, Lord, I want you to do exactly what you want to do in this final prayer. Lord, we're not even throwing out all the review of the text and of our message. Lord, I just pray that you will apply this text. Father, you and the Lord Jesus desire purity in the temple. And you said, God, you said our bodies are the temple. So, Lord... If anyone here this morning has known sin, be it their eyes, sin of the eyes, sin of the ears, sin of the mouth, sin of the hands, of the feet. Lord, if we have thoughts that we shouldn't be thinking, and Lord, whole other category, feelings. Lord, if we have feelings, we shouldn't be feeling. Then Lord, rid that, cleanse our temples. Lord, I pray that you would point that out. And that right now, as we're praying, that God, as your Holy Spirit, points anything specific, that first we will confess it and agree with you. And then, Lord, may we invite you and beg you to do what we've not been able to do. Lord, would you cleanse the temple that is our body? We know you care. Father, I ask you that you would make us worshipers in private. Lord, God, please don't let us be fakers that flip a switch on Sunday and suddenly become loving and adoring and worshiping and praising. Lord, I pray that we'll be real and genuine and throughout the week and throughout our days that we'll be worshipers of your Son and you and your Holy Spirit and giving thanks for your word. Make us pure. Make us loving and adoring and worshipful. Please let us be a worshiping church. And lastly, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will make us like Jesus. Make us zealous for your causes. Lord, some of the things we're passionate about are not wrong. They're just lesser. They're just lesser. So, Lord, let us keep the greatest things, the things that we are the most passionate about. Let us see that clearly. God, make that plain. Father, I pray that we would care greatly about your reputation and let it affect how we live. Father, I pray that you would give all of us so much courage and boldness that is so far beyond our natural personality. And Lord, even when we feel all alone, we're the only one in that situation, that we're just like Jesus in this situation, which don't you are just supplying the power and the strength that is literally setting the temperature in the room. May you help us bring the most energy for righteousness into each of the situations we're living in. And Father, Lord, when it calls for it, let us have righteous indignation and wrath. And Lord, loving compassion for those that need it. Help us to live with that balance as you make us more like Jesus. So Father, unusual text today. Unusual, different. But I pray that we'll learn about Jesus and just strive to be more like him. May we love what we've seen this morning. May we love it love him more. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.